Good morning again, friends. Will you pray with me a moment? Lord, now as we open your word, uh, we ask that you will make it what it is, real, living, uh, effective, that it will cut through some of our murk and nonsense and shine a bright light in our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so friends, as this new year, 2024, begins, um, we are dwelling in a part of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And in those chapters, Jesus himself preaches seven messages or sermons to seven of the first churches that existed um, 2,000 years ago in the first century. Now, even when Jesus preaches the sermon, um, I would say there are certain obstacles, hurdles, problems, even um, all these years later uh, with every biblical sermon. For example, did Jesus speak English? He did not. Does Jesus understand English? Of course. <laughs> of course. God understands everything. But his word was not revealed to, uh, to the world in our language. So every single sermon encounters the problem of translation, bridging a gap from one language to another. Did people 2,000 years ago live exactly like they do today? Of course not. Uh, all, huge cultural differences in addition to the language difference. There was not electricity, running water, all kinds of cultural practices and structures and institutions were different. None of those first seven churches had a building that looked anything like this. They probably didn't even have a building. The church was a living thing and a family. Everything, everybody took that for granted. Only many years later did the church get established enough that we started thinking of the church as a place rather than a living organism. Now, there are some things that help us bridge the gap. That's why we preach sermons, because the Bible has these gaps, and we want to get God's word over these gaps so that we can understand it. Um, I had the distinct advantage for the first time in my life of traveling to the modern country of Turkey, where today these seven churches are still located, and walking around there, seeing them with my own eyes, and trying to take in more of the Bible story, and I'm happy to try to share a few of these things with you. So Jesus' second sermon is to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna no longer exists, but right where that ancient city was is the modern city of Izmir. Um, here's what the modern city looks like. I mean, it's a beautiful place. There's mountains that go right down to the Aegean Sea, part of the Mediterranean. Um, there's palm trees. There's pine trees. Can you pull out for the next one? There's water. This is a city of four and a half million people. I mean, it is no small city. There are huge shipping freighters and cruise ships coming in and out. Um, this picture was actually taken from the hilltop where the ancient city was. Is there one more picture? Oh, yeah. So on top of that hill where it took that last picture um, is the ancient city of Smyrna. There's still some Greek and Roman columns um, that stand there. When my sister and I were on top of that hill, there were actually some kids playing soccer in between like the 2,000-year-old columns. Should seem strange to us as Americans. Um, the old city is, uh, it kind of was a two-story thing, partly underground where there were marketplaces and stalls. Um, 
And if you can see right between my head and my sister's head, there's a stream of water, uh, and that's why the city existed there. That water has been running literally for thousands of years. Nobody knows where it come, came from, and there's huge underground water tunnels that basically supply the entire city. So it was to this place that likely the Apostle Paul went. One of the very early churches was planted, and Jesus had something to say to this place. By the way, seven messages to seven churches. Only two of the churches are free of some scathing criticism. Smyrna is one of them. So Jesus only has, even though they're going to have some difficulties, we'll find out. Jesus only has positive things to say. He begins, To the angel or the messenger of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. In all of his sermons, Jesus introduces himself to the church. And to this church, he says, I am the first and the last, and I died and came to life again. Have you ever said something like, uh, maybe if you're old-fashioned, I don't feel good today, I hurt from head to toe. Have you ever said something like this? Now, when we say this, we don't mean that we have a headache and, we ha and our toes hurt, right? It means that like everything feels horrible, right? From head to toe. If you've ever had a car with bumper-to-bumper -bumper coverage and the engine fails, like hopefully they take care of you, not just if the bumpers get dented, right? When Jesus says he is the first and the last, he is saying, I am the center of history from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega. Was Jesus there when God said, let there be light? Yeah. In fact, the Bible says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was, Jesus was there at creation. I would make the case that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning, that is the center point of history. Maybe not in terms of years, but in terms of the meaning of the universe, that event, God becoming one of us and sacrificing himself for our sins, is the center of history. And Jesus is the end. I mean, most American Christians no longer believe this. But we believe that Jesus, who is the first and the last, is coming back. And when Jesus comes on the clouds, it is going to be the end of history as we know it. There's going to be a judgment. Everything's going to be wrapped up. And a new heaven and a new earth is going to begin. And Jesus wants this church that you're going to see is on hard times to know, I'm going to share a message with you, church, but I've got you. I've got the universe from beginning to end. The other thing Jesus says by way of introduction is that I died And I came to life again. The cross, the empty grave, going under the water into death and drowning and rising up and living. Jesus is saying, you may be super struggling. You may feel like you're dying, church. But I've already gone there and I've come back. And if you're with me, you're coming too. Jesus wants to fill them with confidence that he's got them right from the first sentence of his sermon. Uh, here's a picture of this underground water that's still flowing in Smyrna these days. Um, 
I confess with my sister, I got right on the ground. I drank it. I like let it run over my head. Um, this water has been running for more than 2,000 years. Jesus, who died and came to life again, speaking to this church of baptized believers. Jesus knows them, and here's what he says he knows about them. I know your afflictions, and I know your poverty, but yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid, church, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Jesus knows their afflictions, Jesus knows their poverty, and Jesus knows the slander that is happening. Now, by afflictions, this doesn't just mean like inner worries and anxieties. This means like profound, legit, like trouble. Jesus knows about this. Jesus knows about their poverty. Quite likely in that church in Smyrna, if you started following Jesus, there would be business and financial consequences because Christians were a weird, misunderstood, outside minority. And if you identified as one of them and you had a stall in that ancient city selling cloth or selling something else, probably someone would carve something into your stall and people would be like, yeah, I'm not gonna do my transactions with the Christian people. There were consequences. They were also slandered. And this was not merely Christians are weird, Christians aren't, whatever, aren't cool. This was kind of the, like a public form of slander, being denounced and identified in public for being a follower of Jesus. Does this sound like a tough time to be a Christian? Have any of you encountered it? I mean, I have not to, the, to the, that kind of degree. And Jesus says, some of you are going to prison for 10 days. It's a strange thing to say. 10 seconds is a very short period of time. 10 years is a very long period of time. 10 days means like it's going to hurt, but it's not going to last forever. Additionally, there's one other little story about some people in the Bible being tested for 10 days in the Old Testament. Um, the prophet Daniel and his three friends were put to the test when they were captives in Babylon. And the king said, I need to put you on this amazing diet of all the richest and fanciest royal foods. And they were like, give us 10 days, king, and see how our God treats us while we avoid all your fancy, unclean, royal stuff. And they emerge from that test of 10 days, and everybody's like, these guys look amazing. They're healthy, they're sane, they're fit. Maybe we should all do what Daniel does. And this is Jesus' way of saying, just like Daniel was in an unknown foreign place, but I preserved and protected him, so in your city of Smyrna church, you're going to be tested, but I am going to preserve and protect you as well. Now, Jesus is the one preaching these sermons, but the person taking notes and writing them down is one of his disciples, the apostle John. And John is writing this 
from a prison island like the Alcatraz of the ancient world, all right? So he's not only telling the church, like, look, you're going to have a hard time. He's writing it from prison, all right? And I want to mention one other person that we know was a disciple of the Apostle John in ancient Smyrna. It was a man named Polycarp. Have you ever met a Polycarp? I have not. I've caught a few carp usually on accident, but never a Polycarp. Okay, it was not the weirdest name 2,000 years ago, but we know as a young man, Polycarp was born about 70 AD. This book is maybe written in the 90s AD. So Polycarp, as a young adult and young man, came to Christ and was one of John's own disciples and probably reading these words as a very young man. I can't help but to remember what Jesus said about poverty. It's strange to say in the world of the western suburbs of Chicago, where we're the top 1% of 1% of wealthy people in the world, but Jesus himself said about poverty, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Check it out in the book of Luke. And Jesus said about persecution, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, check it out. We do so much in our life to avoid poverty, to avoid slander, to avoid persecution. We can't help it. It's in our human nature to seek comfort. And yet, if it's not there, Jesus is saying, when the poverty is there, When the persecution is there, when the slander is there, I am there and you know more about me and more about the kingdom of heaven, more about me when you share these experiences that I experienced. Jesus continues, be faithful even to the point of death and I, I will give you life as a victor's crown Now, that man named Polycarp that I mentioned, um, he not only was a disciple of John's, but he grew up. um, He became a witness. He became an elder. He became a pastor. And in his older years, he became the pastor of pastors, sometimes known as the bishop of the churches around Smyrna. And when that man was 86 years old, um, he was accused in the Roman Empire of a public crime. Now, 2,000 years ago, some of the things that were said about Christians were, you guys are unpatriotic because you won't say that Caesar is Lord. And Christians were like, yeah, Jesus is Lord. So if that's what unpatriotic means, like, we're unpatriotic. One of the other accusations about Christians is like, you guys have this meal where you talk about Jesus and you eat his body and you drink his blood. We don't know what's going on there, but that just sounds weird. Maybe you guys are cannibals, honestly. Like 2,000 years ago, before the faith was understood, this was one of the accusations. And if you're living next door to a person who's eating what and drinking what? Like, how do you feel about that person? One of the other charges against Christians was that we were atheists. Now, that one might seem especially strange, but remember 2,000 years ago in the Greek and Roman world, there were so many gods. There was Zeus, 
and there was Athena, and there was Mercury, and there was Apollo, and the Roman emperors claimed that they were gods, and we Christians were like, none of those are gods. Like, that's all make-believe. There's only the one true God who created heaven and earth and his spirit and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And people were like, you don't believe in gods? You guys are atheists. So Polycarp was rung up on the charge of atheism as an 86-year-old bishop. Now, the punishment for this, capital punishment, was that he was going to be burned alive. Like, on that very hill where I took some of those pictures. And a very helpful government official, we still have the transcript of how this conversation went down. A very helpful government official said this to Polycarp. Can I get the next one? Sweet. Why don't you just say, Caesar is Lord? Put a little bit of incense on this altar devoted to the image of the emperor, and then we can let you go, Polycarp. Nobody wants to kill the old guy. And Polycarp says this, 86 years have I served Christ, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Now, this is a faithful man. He had read in Jesus' sermon to the church of Smyrna, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This is a man who believed this from head to toe and took it to heart and would not renounce his Lord to live a few more years. This is a manly man, right? I want to be like Polycarp now. Jesus promises that for those who stay faithful, we will receive A crown of life. Now, in the ancient world, if you won the Olympics, you got a laurel crown. If you were the emperor, you got a gold crown. And Jesus is saying what awaits every single disciple is not like a visible crown or a perishable crown, but a crown of life. Can you even imagine that? Like you're so alive that encircling you and enveloping your very being is life itself? Where is Polycarp right now? This guy who was martyred 1900-something years ago. Um, He is in the presence of God in some mysterious way, and he is crowned with life. If you walk in his footsteps, if you have died, if you have gone under the water and been raised up with Jesus, you will wear the crown of life. And it is so much better than the mortal life that you carry right now. Um, Miraculously, uh, this part of the world has been through so much tumult in the last 2,000 years. Um, I mentioned this a month ago, but forgive me. There are still Christians in Izmir, even though it's a country that is 99.9999% not Christian. Um, Here's a couple pictures from a Christmas celebration. Um, Christmas 2023, well, Christmas 2022, 400 people showed up at a Christian gathering to hear about Jesus born to be a man. This year, 2023, do you see the clicker on the right? 4,430 people 
They weren't done yet. 10 times the number of people one year later showed up in this country where one of the first seeds of the churches, something is happening in this world right now where the name of Christ once again sounds like really good news. Because more and more people are convinced really good news is not going to come from geopolitics. Really good news is not going to come from an improved energy policy. Really great news is not going to come from the World Health Organization or the World Economic Foundation. Like, they all have their place, great, but we need better news. And people are starting to get tuned in once again that there's something on a soul level that speaks to something beyond everything that we see with our eyes and a crown of life. Here's how Jesus' message concludes. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What are we supposed to hear as Elmhurst CRC, along with our brothers and sisters in Smyrna? We are supposed to hear commendation to stay faithful even if things get difficult, even if there's poverty, even if there's slander, even if there's persecution. They had major league. We might have a little minor league, but the same is true because even minor league slander or poverty or persecution can cause our little hearts to despair. And Jesus says, keep at it with our brothers and sisters in Smyrna, stay faithful. And Jesus says this, I'm faithful to you when you're faithful to me. Not only can the first death not hurt you, but the second death, what is that? The second death can't hurt you. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, all of Jesus' messages in the last book of Revelation do callbacks to the first book of Genesis, all the way back to Genesis 3, because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and broke relationship with God. Sickness, death, conflict, war, trouble, anxiety, all came into this world, and we are all the heirs of this. That is the first death. The Bible says this. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're mortal. We're sinful. The first death, I'm sorry to say, is coming for all of us. None of us will escape it. That's why we go under the water in baptism. It's the first death. Jesus himself, on the cross went through the first death. Jesus totally identifies with every bit of our human experience. But because Jesus, the perfect human and God, went through the first death and was totally innocent, death could not keep him down, so he was raised up to new life. And if you are with Jesus, the first death is not going to keep you down either. Amen? The first death is not going to keep you down either. But that is not the end of the story. The Bible talks about the end of history because Jesus is the first and the last. And not only is this mortal first death, but there is a second death. 
If you want to read some troubling words, check out Revelation 20 sometime. But here's how it ends. Then death itself and Hades and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a sermon for another day, but one of the pictures that the Bible paints is that mm, the second death is the undoing of that which is not fit for eternal life. It is undone and unwound. Is there room in God's new heavens and new earth for the grave? No, it's done. So it goes into the lake of fire and it's gone. Is there room for Hades in the land of life? No, so it goes into the lake of fire, which is the second death, and it's gone forever and ever, amen, because when there's a new heavens and new earth, it will only be light and life and joy and Jesus and following him. Now, after the first death, there are two options. The second death, non-existence, or life. And Jesus says about the life pathway this, In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come after me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit. You remember that river that flows right through the center of ancient Smyrna? Jesus is saying, living, pure water, life, That is what is in store with you after the first death. If you come to me, if you're thirsty, if like these girls, you can say, I want to receive Jesus. I want to renounce the devil. I desire the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus is saying, you have no part of the second death. I am raising you up and you will live forever with me. Sometimes we get scared, people. It can be a scary world. Do we need to fear what lies ahead? We don't. It's going to last 10 days, max. Do you need to fear the first death? Even if you get sick, even if it's painful, even if persecution comes back, that is not the end of the story. We do not need to fear it. We can be confident of the life that lies beyond. So Jesus says to us, come to the water, drink, wear the victor's crown of life. I've got you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you love your church so much that you not only died to save her, not, you not only raise us to new life, but you gave these messages to the first church and our church. Lord, we do believe you are the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We do believe you are the one who has died and has risen. And because of that, we put our confidence and faith in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Invite you to stand up. We're going to sing a final song together. Amen. Yes, we are.